Hi, this is Michael, and you're listening to Soma's podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing and subscribing. It's our vision as a church to help as many people come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. This podcast is a vehicle to further that vision. If the content has encouraged you in any way, we'd love to invite you to join us in helping us reach more people with the message of Jesus through this podcast and all that we do as a church. You can help by giving on our website at soma.church. If you're ever in the area on a Sunday, we'd love to host you. For more information about location and service times, you can visit us at soma.church. Church. Enjoy the message. Today we're going to continue this series, Make Room. We're going to be at 1 John 4. I got a lot to throw at you. I got a 57-minute message that I'm going to hit in 34 minutes and 54 seconds, so pray for your boy. Here we go. 1 John 4 says this, one of my favorite passages. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not Love does not know God because God is love. This is how God shows his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loves us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And so if you're breaking down this passage, because there's a lot of loves going on in this passage, here's what John's trying to tell us in this letter to the church. In 1 John 4, 7 through 11, he says this, verse 8, God is love. Verse 10, God loves us. Verse 11, we love others. That's the order. That's the divine order of this passage. And so you can't love other people without realizing that God loves you. And, and, God loves you because God is love. He's the author of it. He, he created it. So love isn't God because that boxes God in to your, de- your definition and even broader culture's definition as to what love is. But God is love. And he created it and he founded it. And then he operates in that. And so here's the culture's view of love. The culture's view of love is real love comes from a feeling. It's just a feeling primarily. And, and love has feelings. Okay, I'm not saying love doesn't have feelings. I'm just saying it's not a feeling. And so uh, love is something entirely different. So when we feel like it or when we don't feel like it, you can love people. Real love comes from approval is another thing that culture says. So if, if you approve of, of me, everything about me, then you love me. And if you don't approve of me or what I've done or what I'm doing or who I am, then, then, it, then you don't love me. And so broader culture also says real love comes from effort. So, man, I've got to stay in your good graces. I've got to work hard. I've got to please you. Otherwise, you don't love me. And, again, biblical definition of love is entirely different, and that's what we're going to spend the bulk of our day talking about. The biblical concept of love is active, and love in action is compassion. That's what the definition is. Compassion is love in action. And so if we're going to get what John's saying here in this letter that he wrote, we have to understand that we live in a culture where expressing love is often not active, but it's very passive. It's passive. And it's sentiment more than anything. And so, so often we're giving and receiving passive love or we're giving sentiment. We're well-wishing people. Sentiment is love that isn't acted on. It's the seed of compassion that could grow into something but never does. So that's sentiment pretty emotive based. So I'm not going to do anything with it. I just feel the thing and I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to give you some examples. It's being more emotionally invested in the characters of a movie or a series 
that you stream than you are with your family or your coworkers. More headspace dedicated to more, more emotional equity, more time spent there than with the people who are right in front of you. It's news reports that wakes you up to victims of a natural disaster, either locally, because I've had this happen before even in my personal life, regionally something bad happened, or in the nation, or even globally, and you see that and you go, man, that's terrible. Somebody should get that. Like, somebody should do something about that, and you don't really do anything with it. It's, it's having a post on social media, a sign in a storefront, or a sign in a yard about anti-racism without taking the time to build relationships with those who are ethnically different from you or have a so, different socioeconomic background. It's being deeply moved by a sermon. You'll come on a Sunday. You'll hear God's word. God will speak to you directly. And, and then you go, man, that is so strong. But then never go and share the message and the hope of Christ with anybody in your life. You never really share the story of what Jesus has done in your own life. So, man, that hits so strong. But, and so this is what sentiment does. It's, it's very passive. But Jesus lived with no gap. Everybody say no gap. No gap. There was no gap. There was no gap for Jesus between the internal movement of his heart and the action of his hands and feet. Every single time the Bible tells us that Jesus is deeply moved in spirit. He's compelled to do something. He goes on to show you the follow-through that he feels in that moment. Jesus does something with being compelled. Compassion is what marks his ministry. Jesus makes room for others. And then he calls us to do the same in 1 John 4. And then he tells us, as you make room, here's what's so crazy about this passage. As you make room for people, God does a work in you where you become more like Christ and you experience more fulfillment, more joy. You experience the love of God in a way that you hadn't up to that point. Just spiritual disciplines alone aren't going to get you there. It's love, loving people the way that he's called you and I to love people, making room for others. And so Jesus does this time and time again in his ministry. So, for example, he stops in the street. He's on his way to heal this little girl who's on deathbed, and she ends up passing away. Jairus' daughter, but as he's going to heal this little girl, this lady pulls him, stops him in the street, grabs the, the hem of his garment, and she's been bleeding for 12 years, and there's this whole scene where he stops and ministers directly to this woman. Even though the dad of this girl is like, okay, cool, can we hurry up? Because like, baby girl's not doing so great. And so, but he takes time. He makes room to minister to this woman, knowing he's not boxed in. Hey, I can go resurrect your daughter. And so I want you to think about uh, when he, he goes and visits Martha and Mary after Lazarus' passing. The Bible tells us that he has empathy for the family. He's moved to a place of tears. He's crying, and he's mourning the death of his friend, but empathy gives way to compassion. He does something about it. He goes up to the tomb and says, walk out of the tomb. And so uh, I'm thinking about the feeding of the 5,000. So he's preaching. Like 20,000 people on this hillside, somebody's hungry, right? And so he decides, you know what? We're going to serve the people right where they are. He would intercede to the Father, physical or inner healing for some people, deliverance of the oppressed. The Good Samaritan is a great example. So probably like the best known parable of Jesus, the Good Samaritan, is um, it's a parable. It's a story about sentiment versus compassion. So the priest and the Levite, they see a need. And in sentiment, like, man, somebody should get that. The, the Samaritan comes along and in compassion is willing to put love into action. And so Jesus, he makes room for people. He makes room for a stop. And just a chapter prior to the teaching that we read in 1 John 4, we see this in chapter 3. He says this, this is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words and speech, but with actions and in truth. And so both Jesus and John are saying real love is participatory. It is action. It's not an emotive. It's like I'm doing something with it. It's compassion. And so... Another thing on this idea of love is that it's never abstract. It's not abstract. It's concrete, and love is relational by nature. So, for example, if I ask you right now, just in your head, to define expressed love, what does expressed love look like in your life? Who has expressed love to you, and what does it look like in your life? It would be different for every single one of you, and there would be names attached to that expressed love. So, and this is the reason why we have things like five love languages, for example, because we receive and we give it in different ways, but you feel it. When you feel it, you're like, man, they didn't make it about them in that moment. They made it about me in that moment. They served me. They sacrificed. They gave. There was, there was feet uh, to that sentiment. There was, some, there was some meat to it. There was compassion there for me. And so there's what Eugene Peterson says. He says, love is the most context-specific act in the entire spectrum of human behavior. There's no other single human act more dependent and more dependent on and immersed in immediate context. Which means, again, we're going to receive and give love in different ways. And so when we make it sentiment, when we make it just about, man, I love you. You know people who say that, right? Hey, I love you. I love you. But then they, there's nothing behind the sentiment to prove that they actually love you. And God's saying, hey, stop talking about it. Stop telling people that you're my witness. Stop telling people that you're my follower. Stop telling people that you love them. Do something with it. Have compassion for others. And then John says this in verse 8. He starts it off with this. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So when God revealed himself to Moses, he says this about himself. I love this in Exodus 34. There's this exchange. And You're familiar with the I am statement that God has when he tells Moses, hey, just tell him I am. We talked about that, I believe, even last week. But he also says this in Exodus 34, verse 6. He says, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord. This is God talking. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God says, that's who I am. This is who I am. And then I love that in Psalm 103, David gives us commentary on this moment. David is thinking back to when Moses has this encounter with God, where God tells Moses, this is who I am. And then David said, actually, he made good on his promise. Here's what he says in Psalm 103, 7 and 8. He made known his ways to Moses. His deeds, he did something to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. David says, that's right. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. And so I love this phrasing, he made known his ways. He made known his deeds. Yes, God is abounding in love and he's compassionate. Here's what it looks like. He did something for the people of Israel. And then John takes both how God defines himself in Exodus 34 and how David comes along and David says, yeah, he made good on that promise. And here's what, here's what John says. And he, he, he shrinks it all down into this phrase, common phrase you and I know is God is love. First John 4, he's giving commentary on what God said in Exodus 34, also what David says in 103, and he says, God is love. And this is the character quality that's singled out in the Bible as the one word summary of God's identity, love. And again, love is not God, but God is love. 
Because if love is God, then it's subject to whatever you and I are feeling about. We'll read a passage of Scripture, see something in Scripture. Well, that's not, not very loving of God. Says who? God is love. Versus, versus our understanding, or again, broader culture's idea of what love is supposed to be. Hey, if God is love, is he, if he's the author of it, if you've ever felt it, if you've ever experienced it, if you've ever felt sacrificial giving on the behalf of somebody else, someone laying down their own agenda, again, compassion on your behalf, you've experienced the love of God. God is love. And because... God is love. This is his identity. But if God is power, then authority and influence over others is how we become godly. But it's not power. If God is knowledge, then to gain knowledge and wisdom is to become like God. If God is untouchable and invulnerable, then to grow, you know, build up walls in our life and, and just not let anybody in is to be more like God. But because God is love, compassion is the way to know God more and become like him. Because God is love. And this is what Jesus is talking about. It's a high bar because Jesus says this on the Sermon on the Mount, and it's kind of a crazy thing. Whenever you read it for the first time, you're like, hold up. Okay, so here's what Jesus says. He says, he says we're supposed to love our enemies and that we're most like God. Get this. We are most like God when we're loving others and specifically when we're loving others who can't reciprocate that love. Because, again, this is the message. This is the gospel. So this is what Jesus did for you and for me. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we surrendered our lives to him. God loves you when you couldn't even re reciprocate. Christ died for you while you were still a sinner. Like this is the gospel message. God loved you not when you were doing what he asked you to do, when you were doing what he asked you not to do. And so loving your enemies is, is this high bar that he calls us to. And then in Matthew 5, 48, he wraps it all up with this, which again, is crazy phrasing. First time you read it, you're like, seriously? But he says this, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. First time I read that, I was like, there's no way I'm giving up. There's no way. Because you're, like, you're thinking of it. English language, when we read the word perfect, we think of uh, the word flawless. That's why it's interpreted in the English language. So if you're getting a diamond for someone, for example, you want it to be flawless. You want it to be perfect. That's our idea of perfection. But in the Hebrew language, perfect is compassion. Ooh, okay, that's a little bit better. Okay, cool. Not, not perfect the way that I had in mind, but perfect in terms of compassion. Luke 6, 36 puts it this way. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Compassion is the way to both know God and become like him. And so just loving people, just in everyday life, making room for people, loving people is the way to become more like Jesus. And a great question for all of us is like uh, a way for this to come alive is when you're at the end of your day, let's say you navigate any given day, Monday, Tuesday, whatever the date is, and it, your head hits the pillow at the end of the day. What constitutes success for you? What was a good day? Like, what, what was a win? Because for me, sometimes it's based on productivity. So, like, I did more today than I did yesterday. It was a good day. I punched more through my list, which nobody cares anyway. You know what I mean? And there's another list tomorrow. But anyway, since I got more things accomplished today, or how about this one? Some of us live in a place of approval. I was affirmed today. Someone said something really nice to me today. And it could be your spouse, it could be your parents, it could be, you could live off the approval of people who are close to you, or most of us live off the approval of people who we don't even know. They like my post. Oh, snap, it went viral. 43 people liked my and shared my, you know, like, whatever. But you live in a place of approval, a successful day. But how about this, compassion? What if we lived in a place of compassion? Did I see people the way that God sees people today? 
Did I make room for people? Did I listen? Did I lean in? Did I fundamentally change the way that I think and I just kind of run in my rat race instead of focusing on the miracle that's right in front of me? Did I make room and have compassion the way that Jesus does? Jesus was never in a hurry. Isn't that wild? Like he's never in a hurry. He's just present. And so make room for the interruption. Make room for service to others. Make room for the Spirit of God to help you listen better. Make room for others. Why? Because they matter and they last for an eternity. So some of the things that you and I, headspace, we're spending a lot of time and energy on, they don't last. C.S. Lewis, I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. There's no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. And so it's not that they're bad things. They just don't laugh, last forever. Read, your, read, read history, I promise you. There's a cycle. But it's immortals with whom we joke, we work with, we marry, we snub, we exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. It's the people that last for an eternity. You want to love people. Why? Because God made them, created them, fashioned them in his image, and he loves you and is for you. Once you realize who you are in Christ, now you have a fundamental uh, shift in perspective, and you begin to see people from a different vantage point. And the great deception of the enemy, you and I have an enemy. We talked about this last week. If it's new to you, you have an enemy, okay? Uh, so the great deception of the enemy is to trick us into the idea that we have to earn what was breathed into us at the very beginning. Uh, Adam and Eve did not earn being sons and daughters of God. It, they just were. Now they lost it, and then guess what? God gave it back again. Not because they were good, not because they behaved, not because of merit, not because of, but because of the grace of God. So God loves you. God is love. God loves you and then calls you to love others. And the way that that look is, is love with action. So the ministry of Jesus, I want you to think about this. The ministry of Jesus didn't start with healings. It didn't start with teachings. It didn't start with a cross or an empty tomb. The ministry of Jesus starts with Jesus receiving love. Father looks down at the son and says, this is my son whom I love. In him I'm well pleased. That's what jumpstarts his ministry. And then he commissions Jesus to take that same ministry of I love you and then go tell everybody who's never heard it before. Go tell everybody who are marginalized. Go tell everybody who uh, is, is on the outskirts. Go tell every and even tell the people who are highly religious who who just forgot. Like go tell everybody this message. This is what he's commissioned to do. This message, taking this message of I love you to the world. But Jesus made room for the marginalized, the outcast, the sinners, the tax collector, the unclean, the broken, the demon-possessed. For those that his culture overlooked, he had compassion because he was secure in the fact that he was loved. Think about how crazy that is. It didn't matter where Jesus went. It didn't matter who he encountered. He never tailored his performance to a particular audience. He never bent on mission or wording. He never, he never um, you know, kind of became his environment. He stood out. Why? Because he was so secure in the love of the Father, he just lived out of a place of security. I am loved. I am God's son. I'm going to operate in that strength. And then he's calling us to do the same thing as sons and daughters. And here, here's the point that John's trying to make in 1 John. There comes a point in following Jesus where the primary experience of God's love isn't first and foremost the practice of, of worship, although that's important. Isn't prayer, although do it. 
isn't tithing, although the Bible would affirm it, and even Jesus, isn't gathering on Sunday, isn't any of the things that we do, all of those are biblical. But the primary experience of God's love at some point in your walk with Jesus is to manifest, it manifests itself in the messy business of others, the business of others. It manifests itself in relationships. So if you're going to become more like God, you have to like do people. You have to like relate, relationships are like a key ingredient in order to become more like Christ. And this is what he's saying in 1 John 4. You can have spiritual disciplines all day long. Get them. They're good. They're a means to an end. What's the end? People. God and people. Loving God better. Loving people better. You know why you read your Bible? You know why you pray? You know why you worship? You know why you gather? You know why you do those things? God and people. You want to be a better husband? You want to be a better wife? You want to be a better uh, son, daughter, friend, coworker, whatever? That's why we do it. He's like, hey, I want you to love people. And guess what? As you do it, like as you make room for people, and as you love people the way that God's asked us to love people, you actually come alive in him in ways that you wouldn't if it was just always spiritual disciplines. If you never got involved, if you never did life with anybody else, yeah, but that's a mess, bro. Like, I don't want to deal with all that. I got my own junk. I don't want to deal. Listen, here's the way you deal with your own junk. You deal with their junk. Like, here's the way you got you to work through life together, life and faith together. The only way to find and follow Jesus is together. You didn't come to Christ alone, and guess what? You won't become like Jesus alone either. You need, you need people. You got to make room for others. And then First John tells us there's two primary categories for this. So he says sisters and brothers, but here's what he's saying. Make room for those inside the church. And it says this in uh, chapter 2 of this letter. He says, yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. And here John moves from addressing like a, whoever's reading this letter to a specific group of people. Where he looks at the local church that he's addressing, he's like, hey, love one another. Like, love the person sitting next to you. Love the person over here. Like, love the people in this room. You have to love each other because, like, the, the, your testimony's at stake. The gospel's at stake. And a lot, of us, a lot of us are coming from backgrounds and experiences in church where, like somebody said something or did something or you got church burn or whatever. And a lot of our church family is populated by people who grew up and like, yeah, man, it was so unhealthy. Like I got, you know, I got cut in this way or somebody said this or somebody did this. Listen, just give it time. Somebody go say something dumb here too. Okay. I'm just going to, I'm just going to put that out there. Okay. That's a prophetic word. Like, and it, but, but the idea is love one another, serve one another, submit to one another, make room for people inside of the church, love the person sitting next to you. He starts off this passage in chapter 2 by saying, Beloved, I'm giving you a new command. And so when I first read that, I'm like, how's John? John's, pff, he's bold. He's giving new commands up in here. You know what I mean? Like, that's not your place. But he, he's robbing it from Jesus. He gets this phrasing from Jesus. And I love John. It's my favorite gospel because John is the outlier when it comes to his biography of Jesus. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic gospels, they're all written around the same time, all coming from a similar angle, and all basically, hey, here's the narrative in the life of Christ. John is written like an op-ed piece because it's like 60 to 70 years removed from the life of Jesus. Now, he's an eyewitness account, but he also has the benefit of time. He's Grandpa John. 
Your boy's learned some things. You know what I mean? He's reading the other synoptic gospels, and he's like, okay, cool. What is the church missing on the angle of Jesus that I was there, I saw it, but they need this. Like, the church needs this. And so he writes with that in mind, and it's so great. And I love it because this is, uh, for example, this is where we get uh, John 13 is a great example, where Jesus, in the other gospel accounts, you know, it's, it's the Lord's Supper. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He's celebrating Passover with his followers. And uh, it's, where, it's where we get communion from. And so all the other gospel accounts primarily are centered on the two elements, the, the bread and the wine. And then John comes along and he focuses on two other elements, the water basin and the towel. And so here's what he says in John 13. He says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Now, that's really important because everything else that happens after this is because Jesus knew who he was and knew where he was going. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Why? Because he knew who he was. And he knew where he was going and he could be super vulnerable and he could put on the servant's towel because he knew who he was. Now, if I'm, if I'm a disciple, I always imagine myself in this, in this story. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, the disciples walk in, they see the water basin, they see the towel. There's no servant there to wash the feet, even though like that's a thing. If you're going to a dinner party, somebody's washing feet. And so they're looking and they're taking inventory and they're like, I'm like six, maybe seven. I'm not 12. Like, I'm not picking that junk up. Bartholomew can get that. You know what I mean? Like, like whoever, like, just somebody else has got that. It's not for me. And Jesus, out of a place of security, out of a place of the Father loves me, I know who I am, I know where I'm going, he takes off this outer garment. He takes off the presentable self and the right to, to remain, uh, you know, in control of your perception. And Jesus gets vulnerable because he knew who he was and he knew he was loved and he was able to serve others in humility because of it. And so Jesus goes on in John 13 by saying this, verse 34, a new command I give you. This is where John gets it in, in, in first John. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you so that you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Everybody's going to know. It's a conditional phrase. If you love one another, if you have memorized, uh, you know, 50 verses, if you have perfect attendance on Sunday, if you went on that mission trip that one time, if you got saved at summer camp, no, if you love one another, that's how people know if you're my disciple. That's how they know. How, how you express compassion towards others, how you love and serve others, in this way. And this is where John gets this phrasing. Again, back to 1 John chapter 2, John says this, yet I'm writing you a new command. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. And here's what John's trying to say. He's saying the integrity, the integrity of your love is tested by those who are closest to you. So if you really are after it, if you're really desiring what God wants for you, it's not just you're loving people missionally. 
It's easy to love people occasionally. It's easy to love random strangers coming from nowhere. They think you're amazing, right? They met you that one time. It's, it's a different game to like, I, mean, I can love in sprints all day long. I love a love sprint. Woo, I love a love sprint. Love on Sundays, oh, love everybody on Sundays. You know what I mean? Serve day, I can love for about five hours. Just love me some people, I'm so compassionate. What you need, I'll do everything. Like, you know, and, but then like, what about, what about every other day of your life with the people who are closest to you and John says, this is the testimony that you have. This is how important it is. Jesus says, since I've washed your feet, wash one another's feet. And the closest of us, uh, the closest people to us often get the worst parts of us. Right? And said, so, hey, you just got to change your mindset entirely and think, how do I serve but like all the time? How do, I t- how do I pick up a towel all the time? So with your spouse and your kids and your roommates and your group night and your friends and your family who are closest to you, take the place of a servant. Routinely make much of others, listen to one another, honor one another, serve one another, submit to one another. Make your greatest ambition in life to serve the people around you. Hey, that thing that you were going to say that one time and you never said it, walk across the room and say it. Hey, the thing that nobody wants to do and you see it and you're like, somebody should do that. Don't just have sentiment. Have compassion and then lead the rest of the room because when Jesus picked up the towel in the water basin, you know good and well. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us everybody's like, oh, snap. Like everybody's like, Peter, everybody's like, we screwed this up. Like this was a, this was a test and we totally jacked this moment up. So like just take, take, put love on. Giving away the love of God to people whose imperfections we've grown the most accustomed to because of close proximity. So the people who are closest to you in your life and maybe they rub you, and maybe there's resentment, and maybe there's bitterness, and maybe there's contempt, and maybe you're more prone to argue and have a hard time with that person. Why? Because you were closest to them. That's why. Because they live with you, okay? That's, that's, that's the problem, right? It's not the person. It's you, okay? So you live, under, you live under a roof together, and so he's just like, hey, serve one another. Love one another. And, and, and in this... Jesus says, I'm going to set an example that you would do what I've done. And here's the hard part. His example includes, because some of you are like, yeah, I'm down with that. But sometimes people do stupid stuff, and then I kind of have to write them off. Jesus includes personal suffering. I think it's so wild. I think about this, the fact that Jesus breaks bread, pours a cup, hands it to Judas. That's so crazy to me. Isn't that nuts? It's my body that's broken for you, Judas. It's my blood that's shed for you, Judas. It's so nuts. So included in this commission is personal suffering. And guess what? You're going to have to forgive each other. If you make room for people, if you let people in, and the only way to grow and become more like God is to do this, the only way to grow and become more like God is to grow in the area of love. you got to let people in. If you let people in, there's going to be an offense. Oh, somebody's going to say something, do something. Bible tells us forgive them. How many times? 70 times 7. Okay, right? 70 times 7. A love that includes no keeping record of wrongs. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. How? How you love each other. How you love each other. Why is it that the church is struggling today? Because we are garbage at this. And I say we as in I'm including myself in this, okay? So I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just letting you know, like, I'm in this. So it's not your morality, it's not your disciplines, it's not church attendance that identifies you as being near to God. Although those are good things, those are not bad things. It's love for each other that sets you apart. 
And so when I see the difference between the impact that the local church makes today, and say, for example, like you read your Bible, you look at Acts chapter 2. Everybody loves, every preacher loves Acts chapter 2. Look at the church in Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2, church is like blowing up, new church, crazy things are happening. And so, oh man, they're just prophecy and healings and miracles. And, but also they gave so much of themselves to each other and to the cause of Christ. So much so that they were willing to go through hard things. They were willing to forgive each other. They were willing to lay their lives down their agenda. They never imitated the miracles of Jesus without the love of Jesus. They learned to forgive and ask for forgiveness. And they saw the worst in each other, and then they kept showing up. That's how you church. And they grew in compassion. And and the kingdom made an impact in ways that we haven't seen since. Why? Because they also, every time there was a prophetic word, a healing, or a miracle, all of that uh, in the kingdom, um, Power always serves love. So love always precedes like a compassion for and a love for people and a compelling of God. Like, God, I really feel called to do this thing. Power always like comes after a a love for people. And so what if you and I decided as we gather as a church family, as sisters and brothers, you said, God, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? How can I serve others? How can I wash feet around this dinner table? How can I pick up a towel in my closest relationships? It's going to require more vulnerability. It will. And you got to operate out of a place of security. Some of us struggle with the idea of being more vulnerable because you don't realize how much you're loved. And you just need me to tell you. If you don't hear anything else I say, shut everything else down. You are so loved. And nothing that you did and nothing that you're going to do is going to merit or buy that love. He just loves you. Why? I don't know, but he does. And the Bible tells us that he sends his son. He's so compelled by this love. Compassion kicks in, and then Christ comes and gives his life over. Again, not when we were, when we were doing things right, but when we were at our worst behavior. And so John says, man, you need to have compassion for people who are inside of the church. Practically, what does that look like? you got to start doing life together. you got to start breaking bread together. you got to start, listen, we, we, this is what 11.15 looks like as well, okay, so just so you know. And so then we have an 8 and we have a 5 p.m. Big front door. We don't want to be a mile wide and an inch deep. We want to be deep and wide. And so the only way to get there is to grow small as we grow large as a church. The vehicle for that is small groups. You can call it whatever you want to call it if you don't like that. If that's like a curse word to you or profanity, you can call it whatever you want to. Hangs, dinner parties, uh, chilling with the family, like whatever you want to call it. I don't care what you call it. Get about eight to ten people to do life and ministry faith with, and you're praying together, and you're opening up God's word together, and you're doing the hard, messy work of becoming more like Jesus. You already do it, by the way. You already people. We just do it so poorly. And so just think, man, who's my group of people that I can do life and faith with? And then be praying and asking God to grow you in this area because you got to make room for people inside of the church. But you also got to make room for people outside of the church. This is what, this is what he says. He says, brothers and sisters, but he also says, and we see this in this passage, man, the heart of God is for the people who aren't here yet. So Hebrews 13, 1 and 2 says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Hospitality, when you think of hospitality, I think of like, you know, woodwick candles and like good hand towels, you know what I'm saying? Like got that soap, got strong soap game. Man, this has, you know, everything's so, so clean. So hospitality is a home word. And we think, because I hear people say this before, we can't be hospitable. 
We can't be, we can't host a group. We can't open up our home. Our home's garbage. I don't like our home. You know what I mean? I want their home. 5,000 square foot home. Everything's new. Everything's clean. I want that. Except the Bible tells us, so Jesus embodies biblical hospitality. Nobody has hospitality like Jesus' hospitality. Can I get an amen? Is there anybody read your Bible? Three people. Amen me. Okay, so everybody, everybody say amen. Okay, cool. So Jesus embodies biblical hospitality, but the Bible tells us that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Like, so you can have hospitality. You can, you can, you can have compassion for people. You can create room for people. You don't even have to have the room. And so Jesus is rolling up at the dinner table in people's spaces and places, and he has the gift of hospitality because he's operating out of a place of security. It did not matter what room he went into. He was consistent in message. He was consistent in love. He was consistent in compassion. And nobody had it like he had it because he knew how much the Father loved him and he's taking that message and that mission of love to others. And so we got to make room for the people who are outside of the church. Luke 15, Jesus gives us three parables that help us to understand the heart of the Father for the people who are outside of the church. And when I say the people who are outside of the church, I'm not talking about physically. You could be sitting in this room and, and not be in a relationship with Jesus or, or be in a relationship with God. So it's not bound to geography and the church is not a building or, or you know, a program or whatever. A church is people. And so it's like people who are far from God who desperately need a relationship, a life-giving relationship with Jesus. In Luke 15, Jesus gives us three parables to help us understand the heart for strangers. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son, uh, more commonly known as the prodigal son. And so three different parables around the same subject, the same point, which is the compassion for the stranger, the outsider, and the lost. Jesus is always preoccupied with the one that is missing. He's the good shepherd that leaves 99, perfectly good sheep. That's a high A in my book. I'd be like, we're good. Not yet. He leaves 99 and he goes and finds the one. And so his heart is for the one not yet here. And, and these stories are prompted by by church people. So when Jesus gives these, these stories in scripture in Luke 15, he's responding to just highly religious people. Responding to highly religious people who lack a love for the stranger. And he's walking, as he tells these, he's walking through Samaria. So people who didn't believe what they believed and the people who looked differently than they looked. And this is what Jesus tells as he walks through this region. And what he's saying is, is if you want to make room for others, you've got to love and love freely, not just with family and close friends or people who hold your convictions, because that's not the gospel. You got to love people and, and the gospel hits the hardest when you love people who can't reciprocate yet, because grace will get a hold of you and mess you up. You know what I mean? Uh, so just loving people radically, not just inside the church, but move past the holy huddle outside of the church. Uh, of the walls of the church to be moved by compassion. And so the compassion of Jesus doesn't stay inside. It doesn't stay at home. It goes on mission. He's going places and reaching people. And again, out of a place of security. So Hebrews 13, one and two says, keep, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for by doing, by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And so he's saying there's a supernatural quality to everyday love, that when you love people, just, just when you're serving people and you're wrapping a towel around your waist, God will do things in your spirit and in you and through you in that moment that like 
all the spiritual disciplines and all the good behavior and all the things, like when you're just faithful to do the thing that Jesus has asked you to do and you're loving people in that moment, like real breakthrough happens. Can I tell you the times of like my life where, where I've experienced the most tangible presence of God in my life, the most tangible grace of God in my life are the, time, are the times when other people took the time to love me believe things for me when I couldn't believe them for myself, loved me even when I didn't deserve it, or when I took the time to just love somebody who needed me to be what they needed me to be in that moment. That's the moments that are the craziest in my story of what God's done. Probably same is true for you. And when we do that, the Bible tells us, man, he says, hey, you might even be, inter- you might even be entertaining angels. You have no idea spiritually what's taking place as you love people in a practical way every single day. Jesus says it's this important. Matthew 25, 35 through 36. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And according to Jesus, the most direct way that we minister to him is in compassion towards the stranger. But the human instinct, here's our problem. Some of us want to go on mission. We're a little bit freaked out by going on mission. We're a little bit freaked out by going outside of the holy huddle. We're a little bit freaked out by going outside of the bubble. Oh, I'm just going to keep all me and mine all up inside right here because the world is crazy. Except like Jesus operates out of a place of security. So he steps out on faith for what God can do. The human instinct is to conform to our environments. So you've had this experience and I have too. If I don't operate out of a place of, if I don't know how much I'm loved by God and if I don't operate out of a place of security, I just become whoever it is that I hang out with. Jesus doesn't do that. But we we begin to pick up on social cues and we adapt to our surroundings so we start to do what others do, talk like others talk, blend in. But the biblical invitation is to live among strangers just like you're at home. Just like you're at home. Just like you have a heavenly father who is love, who loves you, and then is calling you to love the people around you. And then not get distracted. Not forget who you are. We're supposed to be at home, secure in our identity, in Jesus, that it doesn't matter where we are. You can be at home with the stranger if we know how much we're loved. And so Jesus leaves the 99 for the one. Jesus is He's the woman who loses a coin and turns everything over trying to find the coin. And when she finds the coin in that parable, she throws a party that costs way more than the coin costs, which is my favorite part of that whole parable. It's like, how much is this coin? You know, like, and so like, throw a party. And uh, Jesus is the dad when the son comes home in the parable son, uh, the, the prodigal son. Jesus is the dad welcoming the son with, with arms wide open. And so it's just, it's, you got to have a heart. You got to have a mind of, you got to have a shift in perspective. Got to see people the way God sees people. I'm going to close with this. There's this story. Uh, Stephen Covey, the guy who wrote um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, if you've ever read that book, he tells a story about how he was on a subway in New York and he was riding the subway and it was a Sunday morning. He was reading a novel and he was like, nobody rides a subway on Sunday morning. Like, uh, like it's the one time you know, all week where it's, it's pretty down and you can, you can find a seat on the subway and it's just really chill. So he's reading a book. He's having a good time reading his book by himself on his commute. Dad comes on the subway and has three kids with him. And when the dad comes on, he says, you know, they sit down for a minute, but then the kids are just r- running everywhere, just buck wild, just like 
doing crazy stuff that kids do. They're all wrestling on the floor. It's all nasty. I don't know if you've been uh, in a subway in New York City. You don't want to wrestle on the floor on a subway in New York City. You know what I'm saying? They're just doing crazy things that kids do, licking poles and all kinds of crazy stuff. I just made that part up. But, like, but you know, like, just my kids? Okay, cool. Uh, but just so, but just doing crazy stuff that kids do. And uh, Covey's getting, he's getting annoyed. And he looks at the guy and he says, sir, uh, can we restore order? Can we restore some order? Dad looked at him and said, said, man, I'm so sorry. My wife just died an hour ago and I have no idea what to do. And Covey said, I just was given over to a place of compassion. Like, oh man, I didn't know. I didn't know. And I just want to encourage you for the people in your life who are struggling, for the people in your life who are operating out of a place of hurt, hurt people, hurt people. So somebody said something to you, did something to you. This is true inside the church and outside the church. It's coming from a place of, man, they're just struggling themselves. And you don't know what walked on that subway. You don't know what they brought with them. You don't know what they're carrying any given day. And Jesus says, hey, have the heart and the mind of, of, of God, man. Just see people the way that, that God sees people. And, and, and here's operate out of a place of security, operate out of a place of love, operate out of a place when bad things are happening to you, man, ultimately they just don't know any better. Jesus on the cross and they, they've nailed him to a cross and he is praying, interceding for the people who put him on the cross. Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea. And I think in order for us to like become the church that God's called us to become, and in order for us to become the people on mission that God's called us to become, because again, you were sent. You were here for a reason. Some of you, you navigate every single day and you're like, I don't know what here, I don't know what my purpose is, I don't know why I live in Hickory, whatever. Like God has sent you on purpose, and part of this is for the many people who don't know Jesus, who don't share your faith or your convictions, who don't have a relationship with him, who desperately need to know that God loves them, is for them. and is interceding on their behalf. And, and here's the way that God works, through me and you. He works through me and you. So we got to make room for people. you got to make room for people. Inside the church, you got to make room for people outside of the church. Who's that, per, that co-worker you've never had that conversation with? You know the Holy Spirit's like, told you so many times he's tired of telling you he's like oh man, bro come on now like you know or or somebody in the locker room or somebody at school or a teacher or someone in medical like anywhere out in the community god will speak to you and say hey i want you to share your testimony hey i want you to serve them in this way hey i want you to be generous in this way hey i want you to make room for this person in this moment and then when he gives us marching orders like a willingness to like act on that and then watch god do crazy things in your life as you do it we got to make room. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for um, your word. And we thank you that your love, and we thank you that you define that love by compassion towards us in Christ. God, you love this first. And so out of the overflow of that, help us to love and serve people around us better. And man, so grateful in this moment for the perspective that you give us through John in this letter to the church. God, so grateful in this moment. Thank you so much for, 
for the opportunity to worship, to pray together, but also just an opportunity, Holy Spirit, for you to just speak to us through your word, God. And you know what we needed today. You know exactly what we needed. And we needed to be reminded that you just have a compassion for us. And then when we finally realize how much we're loved, we're operating out of that same place of security, we begin to have a compassion for others. But it's your love working through us. That's what it is. And so, God, would you, would you help us to realize how much? I pray, I pray for the people who don't feel loved, for the people who don't feel valued, for the people who don't feel seen, for the people who do not operate out of a place of being a son or a daughter of the king today. God, would you just help them to see how much they're loved? how much they're pursued, how much you're after them, how much you're for them, and the great things that you have on the other side of surrender. God, more, you want more for us. And it's not easy, but man, it's so much more fulfilling, so much more satisfying, so much more full of joy. So give us over to to making room for others. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, You've never surrendered your life to Jesus. It is not about doing religious things. It is not about your good behavior or your morality. You will never get into right relationship with God or step into a future hope of eternity with him outside of seeing Jesus for who he is and surrendering your life to him. Having a new identity, operating out of that same security. I am loved. God loves me. And so I submit to that the compassion that he has for me in Christ, that while I was at my worst, while I'm in this broken season, while I've made wrong decisions and selfish choices choices and ambitions that are just solely about me, it's not about others. Like, I, God, I want you to give me over to a place of making room for others. So if you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you've never come alive in him, I would love to give you an opportunity to take that faith that you're feeling right now, that belief that Jesus is who he says he is, and then putting feet to that, putting some action steps to that. The Bible tells us to confess him as Lord, to believe in our hearts and confess him as Lord. So with all of our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here and you want to confess Jesus as Lord today, surrender your life to him, I would love for you to just lift your hand in the room and just say, that's for me. I know I need to come alive in Christ. I know I need to surrender. I'm so tired of playing games. I want to experience salvation today. And my faith that what God's doing in my life right now is changing me. Amen. Is there anybody else? awesome. Right where you're at, just say this. Just say, Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my life. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for pursuing me. Thank you for not leaving it as sentiment. Thank you for not making love passive. But thank you for having compassion and doing something about my situation. And you came and everything necessary for my salvation was done 2,000 years ago. But God, I see you for who you are and surrender my life to you. Your life, your death, and your resurrection has implications for my own. Would you lead me moving forward? Would you take all of my sin and my brokenness and my past and in exchange give me over to a new identity? I am your daughter. I'm your son. I'm chosen. I'm loved. I'm valued. I'm commissioned. I've got a purpose and a call on my life. Help me to see people different. Holy Spirit, would you lift my head and help me to see people the way that you see people, God? with real compassion, be present, serve my family, serve my friends, serve those inside the church. God, serve those outside wherever you send me. Lord, we love you. We're so grateful for you. It's in Jesus' name I pray.
Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship.